right. Well, I get to pull double duty this morning. Uh, I get the privilege of being able to share God's Word with you, and that is a privilege. It's always a privilege for someone uh, to stand up here and to share God's Word and kind of share what God has put on their heart, and I, I do take that very seriously. And it's one of those things I, I used to do a lot more than I do now, but I, I enjoy the privilege that it is, and it's great for me because... Um, when I get in there and I start digging, I just find new things. And you would think sometimes, I remember as a kid, I would always think that a pastor would get bored because it's like, okay, how many lessons can you actually teach out of the Bible, right? But as you start to dig, you just find more and more and more. And it is a lifelong pursuit to study God's Word. And I'm thankful that I had the privilege to be able to uh, share in that together this morning. Um, have you ever had maybe an intention or a plan that didn't ever really work out the way that you thought? Have you ever had something in your life that maybe you planned to put into action, but about halfway through, you know, the, the, the spokes started flying off and the thing just kind of came to a complete crash, never working out to what you hoped that it would? Well, um, I read this funny story this week of... Um, a kind of a promotion for a movie, for Mission Impossible 3. Have you ever seen a Mission Impossible movie? Uh, I enjoy, I, as a kid, I love the theme song. I had, a, I had a teacher in elementary school, uh, a music teacher in elementary school, who we'd always get him to play the song for us. The dun, 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 dun. Now, I love that song. Like, it's just so, like, just you just want to go take on the world when you hear that music. And so kind of as a promotion for the third one of those movies, they, they, just, they came up with this great marketing idea. And they thought, what we'll, what we'll do is we'll take these boxes and we're going to put them inside. Um, if, you, if, you're, I know if you're kind of young, maybe you don't even know what these things are. But these mail, the, where you would get your newspaper, the newspaper boxes, okay? So they would mount these things inside the newspaper box so that when someone would open it, it would begin to play the Mission Impossible theme song, right? Is a way just to kind of build hype for this movie. Well, it's one of those things that was the plan. But that's not really how it worked out, okay? Because what ended up happening was um, they didn't really hide them all that well. So people started, uh, they would open the boxes and it would startle them and scare them, okay? And then some people saw it and thought maybe someone had put explosives inside the newspaper box. And so they called the police. And so it became this thing, that this marketing promotion that completely bombed and completely failed. And the cops were called and... Needless to say, it didn't work out like uh, we had planned, or like they had wanted it to. And what I love about God's plans is that they never fail. They never fail. My plans, all the time. <laughs> I have plans and something always goes awry. But God's plans never fail. What I want us to look at this morning is go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in the seat back in front of you. You'll see one called The Story. If you don't have a Bible, you can take this home with you. I know we say this every week, but really, we sincerely mean that. You can take it home with you. Um, and it's on page 3. On page 3 in that Bible, if you want to look it up. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. And what I want to talk about this morning is, um, as I was preparing to kind of preach through this passage... Uh, it was something that God just kind of revealed to me to help me understand that, that this plan was never something that was last minute. It was something that existed from the very beginning, that God was working out His plan throughout time and throughout His creation to bring about something fantastic. 
So let's look together and let's stand in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. We're going to look at the fall of man and some of the consequences of that. So let's read this together. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the certain serpent said to the woman, You shall not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God walking uh, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man says, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust uh, you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and beneath uh, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In this passage, we're often very familiar with this story. It is the fall. It is the beginning of our own story. It's the beginning of all the problems that have ever happened. And the more I read. Genesis, the more I, I just fall in love with this story because it is our own story. As I read it, it's like a mirror. I see myself reflected in it in so many different ways. In this passage, we have the serpent, understanding that it is Satan in form trying to deceive uh, God's creation. And, and his plan is to really, and I love the way that it puts here, to put enmity between the God, the Creator, and His creation. And enmity is an interesting word. It's a state, it's defined as a state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. So Satan's plan was to create a relationship where we and God are enemies to each other. To separate us from God, to cause strife in that relationship, to twist God's words, to take his promises and to change them. And in this story, we have this picture of, of where Satan tries to take God, what God says, and see, he said, God, did he really say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman repeats what God said, we shall not eat of the tree of the garden. And God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. You shouldn't touch it. 
or lest you'll die. And so Satan goes on to say, you shall not surely die. You know, God knows you will eat of and your eyes will be open. He tempts her with, with power and with knowledge and with understanding. And he tempts her with the very thing that he desires for himself. You will be like God. Which one of us in the face of that temptation could say no? Which one of us in the face of, of standing there knowing we could be like God would not take that fruit and eat it? So she looks at it and says it was delight to the eyes. As sin always is a delight to our eyes. She sees that it was good. She desired to be wise. So she takes of it and she eats it. She gives it to her husband. He eats it. And the moment that they do, their eyes are opened to the reality that was there all along. It wasn't that they, they weren't naked and then they were after they ate of that. They were always naked. They just didn't really understand that. And this idea of, of being naked is one of those things being, being brought bare before the Lord to understand our true nature of who we are. And so when they see this and they realize this about themselves, they respond with what? They respond with fear. They respond with shame. They go and they hide and they, they sew fig leaves together to, co to cover themselves. In the same way, when sin has its effect in our life, it brings about shame and it brings about uh, our need to hide. We don't want people to know about it. That's why sin grows in the dark. It doesn't grow in the light. It grows in the darkness. And so when they do that, God's word to them was, if you eat it, you will die. What really struck me about this passage was that when they ate it, they didn't die. I know we've read this before many times, and we understand that there is an eventual and ultimate death that happens here but really, God's, God's words to them is that you will die. And in this moment where we have this transition that happens, they, they eat and they see these things about themselves. They go and they hide. In verse 8, I was really struck back by this thing. says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They go and they hide. But God's desire is, is to find them. God's desire is not to leave them in their brokenness and in their shame and in their hiding and in their nakedness, but rather He goes to them, He goes to find them. Obviously, we know He knows where they are. But instead of leaving them, they could have died instantly as soon as they ate that. They could have been dead, dust, over, gone. But instead... This is the very beginning of God's plan. He goes and he seeks after them. He walks to them in the cool of the day. In verse 9 it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? <laughs> I love that we serve a God that calls to us. That doesn't leave us in our hiddenness, doesn't leave us in our sinfulness, doesn't leave us in our brokenness, but despite those things, He calls to us to come to Him. 
man, how powerful that is for us. As we understand the result of sin is shame and separation, and I'm sure when that happened, the devil laughed with joy. Here you have Adam and Eve hiding and cowering, afraid of their very creator. But yet God is there walking, finding them, calling for them. Where are you? So Adam responds, as I heard, you in the, heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Isn't that what sin does to us? It causes us to fear judgment. And I think oftentimes of my own children when they've done something that they shouldn't, and they know or something that I've specifically told them not to, their first response is to hide. Their first response is to not reveal the truth of what happened. And in my life, I, I've had the same thing when I was a child. My dad um, uh, liked to ride motorcycles. And so at a very young age, much younger than I should have been riding, I was riding motorcycles and three-wheelers. And, and if you've ever, how many of you have ever ridden a three-wheeler? So I'm talking about a little old school, okay, back in the 80s here. Okay, a three-wheeler is, is this like combination between a, a four-wheeler and a motorcycle. It has one wheel in the front, two wheels in the back. And I think they're actually outlawed now because they are dangerous. Because what happens is you ride them and it has a tendency to want to tip over because it's just kind of unbalanced. So I was, I, I think I was about six or seven years old. And um, my dad had a, a, a beautiful Ford F 150 step side truck. Beautiful. I mean, just anybody would love to have this truck. It was silver, it had like yellow and orange and red pinstripes down the side of it. It was just amazing. So one day I was outside just doing what I normally do and, and decided to go for a ride on the three-wheeler and I was riding around our, our yard and just having a good time. My parents live on like 40 acres down in Palaka, so there's plenty of room to ride around, just riding around having fun. Well, I come around the corner, headed back to where I was going to ha- uh, where I parked the, the three-wheeler, again, kind of six or seven shouldn't be riding a three-wheeler and it got up on two wheels and the issue was either I had a choice I had to straighten it out or I had to flip over well the problem was if I straightened it out the thing I would run into was my dad's brand new Ford F-150 stepside truck or I could flip over and who knows what would have happened so I didn't I ran straight into the side of it dented the this little step side wheel well in and at that very moment my response was tears i instantly started crying i ran inside and uh, my parents live in two-story house upstairs to my room and closed the door and refused to come out <laughs> because i was afraid of judgment i knew my dad would be angry with me what I, I came to find out later, I sat up there for hours, okay, fearing the steps of Kim coming up the stairs to come and whatever punishment I was going to have. But it never came. I never heard those steps. And after hours and hours, I decided I might want to come down. So I opened the door and came down, and my dad was gone, and the truck was gone. I come to find out later that actually he got in more trouble than I got in. My mom uh, was more mad at him for teaching a six or seven year old to ride a three wheeler 
than I was for running into the side of his truck. But our response to things when they happen is to run and hide in shame. That is the, the reality of what sin does in our life. And here's what's interesting. I'm sure, like I said, the devil is, 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 is filled with joy at this time. And we have this picture of Adam and Eve hiding from the presence of the Lord as if that is even possible. You know what? Here's what the devil didn't really understand. He miscalculated one thing in his plan to separate us and create enmity between us and, us and God. He miscalculated God's never-ending, unfailing, unconditional love for us. That's the one thing he didn't understand. He thought, I'll do the same thing that like, kind of happened to me. You know, I'll just put this temptation out there and they'll take the bait and then God will judge them. But God doesn't. He goes to them. He calls after them. And in the end of this little section here, we have this, this passage where the, the, the curse on, on the, on the serpent, serpent, on Satan, there's this prophecy that is here. And in verse 15, it tells us, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's this kind of weird thing, like what exactly does that mean? But, but yet, it, you can tell when you read it, like, it's got to be foreshadowing something that's about to happen. You know, and the reality is, it's kind, of, it's kind of vague. It's kind of vague, and God goes on to judge Adam and Eve, and what this prophecy speaks about is really this, this power of Satan versus the power of God. And while Satan won a momentary victory... He does not have the power to overcome God's unfailing pursuit to rescue his creation. So even in the beginning of our story, we have this prophecy of this coming solution to our, to our issue of our separation between us and God that is caused by our sin and our disobedience. And so here we are in, in Genesis and we read this passage and what happens just as those who read this many, many years ago, there's waiting. There's this time, they read this, maybe they don't understand it, maybe it's a little bit vague, but they know it speaks to something. And so we wait. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come, an indication that God is already, even at the very beginning, putting into action a plan to save His people. And it's a great plan. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 9. I don't want to take too much time here because I know Donald's going to be preached on this next week. But I do want to look at two particular things. In Isaiah chapter 9, down in verse 6, we have another prophecy that reveals a little bit more of God's plan. And we've read it so many times, and, and if we look at it, now I, I want to just kind of hit on verse 2 real quickly, and it says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So there's this prophecy of darkness and light, of, of brokenness and healing. But how, how is that going to happen? 
You're talking about fast-forwarding thousands of years here, and nothing really has come to action. I mean, a lot of stuff has happened, but that we're, we're, we're not saved. But I love in verse 6, it says, For to us, and maybe your translation says, For unto us. The reality of it is, is that God is promising to deliver something to us. We don't have to go after it. We don't have to come and get it. He's taking it to us. So the reality is, he says, For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. You know, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm sure we're familiar with this, and maybe this gives us a little bit of a clearer picture of what God is going to be doing. And of course, we stand here, you know, in, in, in 2019, soon to be 2020, and we, we understand what this means, but I'm sure as people read this in the Old Testament, they didn't really understand what was happening, because it goes on to call him these names like Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, and, and, and there'll be no end to his kingdom. And so as they read these things, I'm sure just like, they were like, what, what does this mean? What is God up to? So they, so they come up with these theories. And they come up with these ideas of this Messiah, and they manufacture this Messiah more in their image than in God's image. And their expectation is looking for this political Messiah who's going to come and rescue them from the Romans. But we know that's not what happened. And I would say the same thing to us. We need to watch our expectations of what we think God will do. We look at His Word and we take it as His Word, but we don't necessarily have a full understanding of exactly how He will work out His plan in the future. So as much as we can read it and try to understand it, we hold those things loosely because we haven't seen them come to fruition. And one of my favorite parts of this, in the, in the very bottom of verse 7... It goes on to say, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. <coughs> How do we exhibit zeal? What is zeal? Well, I, I, I like the idea. It's really a great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. It's like you're just getting excited as you see a plan unfold. And so I love in this passage, after it gives us this prophecy of a child and a son being given, it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, will do this. And as these things are starting to be accomplished, God is excited. He is, he is filled with energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. And that cause is us. We are the object of his zeal. We are the object of his enthusiasm. The rescue of his creation, the rescue of us is his objective. We are his cause. His passion is for his people and has never waned and never stopped. We serve a God who continues to pursue us over and over and over again. And we all know what has happened. As we, we, we stop here in Isaiah, but we think back, back to Genesis. Man, there is rebellion, there is rejection, there are cycles of, of, of loving God and then rejecting God and serving other idols. We know all the things that has happened, but despite all those things, God's plan marches forward and continues to go and continues to grow and continues to work out His plan for us to save us. 
You know, when we think about, we get things we get excited about. <clears throat> it's easy to think about um, a football game because we get excited about we watch football. As we see our team start to take charge, you know, we see, we see them start to make a plan to accomplish, to get, get that football down the field. That's really, that's really all we're talking about, right? But yet, as they start to do that and they make progress, we get more and more excited. It's like this progression where we wait, you know, it gets, gets closer and it gets closer and it gets closer. It's this building moment in our life to when they finally score the touchdown, we can't help but just jump up and cheer. And we have those times in our lives where maybe we've, we've had a plan. <clears throat> and as a kid of the 80s, I was a big fan of the A-team. Um, as a matter of fact, I was such a huge, big fan of the A-team. Of course, it was Mr. T all the way. That's just the way it is, okay? I'm still a big Mr. T fan. I had the Mr. T pajamas. I had the Mr. T cereal. I had, I had all the Mr. T stuff, the lunchbox, you name it. I had it. I was a big uh, A-team, Mr. T fan. But I remember there's, there's Hannibal, the guy on there, and he always had this saying. Do you remember? It says, says, I just love it when a plan comes together. It says something about seeing something unfold. It just builds anticipation. And that's what God is doing in this passage. He's continuing to un unfold his plan. And he's getting excited about it. He's getting excited, but yet God doesn't work on our timetable. Thousands of years will pass. Hundreds of years will pass. But the thing is, he's waiting for the perfect time to bring about his perfect plan. Let's flip forward to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we see the culmination of God's plan. In this simple phrase, where it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, God, the Word was God. The Word was, was with God. He created all things. He was all things. And the plan was ultimately that God Himself would come to save His people. So as we build forward to this culmination, we see that not only is God constantly pursuing us, but he is also a God who comes to us to save us. Just like he walked to Adam and Eve to find them in the garden. Just like he promised in Isaiah to send something to us. Here he becomes one of us, among us, and separates himself than any other idea of God that had ever existed before. That this was a God who had flesh and blood, who walked on the earth and was going to do something great. He says, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son of the Father from full of grace and truth. When Amanda and I were engaged, we dated for seven years, all the way through high school and then college. And when I asked her to marry me, it was the summer between after we graduated college and when I was going to start seminary. And so, kind of getting, uh, moving forward to our wedding, there was a time of separation. She went to a small Christian school in Georgia and worked there for a year. I started seminary in Virginia and worked, getting prepared for this ceremony that was going to come. 
Well, we had spent months apart. We'd talk every day on the phone, but we, we had spent months apart. And so I had this plan. And this plan was I was going to drive eight hours and go see her, surprise her. Okay, something many of you probably have done, something like that. And so I had this plan. I had figured out what time her class would be over and uh, knew you know, when I needed to leave and when I needed to get there. And, and so I, I started out that morning and drove eight hours down to where she was in Georgia and, and got there. And it just was like, okay, the, I, you know, you're, it's one of those things where you're trying to pull off a surprise. You're just, in any moment, you're, you're thinking the whole thing's going to be ruined, right? So, so as things move forward, you're like, okay, I think this is actually going to work out. And so I go into the school and I say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm Amanda's uh, fiance and I'm here to see her. I want to surprise her though, so can, can you let me go to her classroom? And so I go to her classroom and it's completely empty. She's not there. <laughs> I think, okay, well, where is she? <laughs> you know, what is she doing? So I sit. I sit in one of, the, one of the students' desks. I just sit there. I thought, maybe she'll come back. So I sat there for about 30 minutes thinking, is she going to come? Is she not going to come? I drove eight hours. Hopefully she didn't decide to go home, which was impolite. You know, drive to Florida for something that weekend. And I didn't even know about it. So I sat there and waited on a Friday afternoon, and finally she walked in the door. And it's in that moment of where you have a plan, and it finally works out, especially for someone that you love, the excitement that builds up in you, you can't wait to see them and they can't wait to see you it was one of those moments that she talks about all the time and I think to myself in this moment this is the moment that God himself fulfills his plan to live and dwell among his people in, a, in still a foreshadowing way but the word becomes flesh and dwells among us so as we prepare our hearts in this season and in this time, we need to dwell on these things. That the Word became flesh, that it dwelled among us. It says, and, having, and we have seen His glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's on the same verse 16. It says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I love that picture. That's like God just like heaping something on your plate. Here, hey, you want some more grace? Have some more. That's his love for us. His grace upon grace. We stand in a place where we, under, we, we, we are broken. We are naked. We are ashamed. We are fearful. We stand in a place where we should rightfully be judged, yet God continues to pursue us. That is something... We should never stop marveling at. It's something that we should never stop thinking about. And here's the reality. As great as that was, it is what a great culmination moment that that was that Jesus was born. If you look back in verse 9 of John chapter 1, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The one true light. You understand, like, like, like Satan, see, Satan and sin destroy and bring about death. God is the giver of life and light. God, uh, Satan dwells in darkness. God himself is light. It says the true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. What a moment it was. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. His very creation, He stands on. But the reality was, it says, Yet the world did not know Him. And He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. So it isn't just a warm, fuzzy picture. You would think this would be a moment where all of creation would cry out and applause and the rocks would start shouting and all this stuff would happen because this is God here. The Creator is now standing amidst His creation. And yet, yet that's not how the story goes. He was welcomed into this world not as He should be. But it wasn't something that escaped Him. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that he was going to come and the world was not going to know him, was going to reject him, because that is what Israel has done. That is what we would do if we were in their position. We are no different than them. But the reality is yet, despite those things, he continues to pursue us. He knew he would be rejected. He knew he was coming to die on the cross. He knew all the pain and suffering that that would endure, but yet he still came anyways. And it goes on to say why. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That was his plan all along, was to redeem his children. And I know I can say this from a father's standpoint, that there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that I wouldn't do for my children. Especially if I, if I had a way that I could redeem them, there is nothing that would hold me back from, from being able to do that, short of death itself on my part. And so we have this picture of God pursuing His children to redeem them back to Himself. Man, what a picture it is for us. So we serve a God who calls out to us in our brokenness. We serve a God who continues to pursue us in our rebellion. And we serve a God who comes to save us and His very flesh comes to dwell among us and never gives up on us. So His zeal, God's passion, His love for us is what motivates Him and I think, you know, here we have these prophecies in, in Genesis, and then we looked in Isaiah, and then we kind of see it come to fruition in John chapter 1 and, and all throughout the New Testament. You know, Satan's plan was to cause division. And this is how God works, right? Because he works like this in my life. He uses my own brokenness and my own rebellion and his plan to work out his promises in my life, and it, I don't understand it. I don't understand how he does it. And so here you have Satan's plan to cause division. He uses that. God uses that as the opportunity to demonstrate His great love for us. He takes the very thing that Satan caused to destroy us to use it to redeem us. That is how God works. That, as we, we stand here and enter into this season, we should marvel at that. We should look at that and say, well, I don't understand that. And it is a mystery to us because we are not God. 
But for us, it is not only that, that we stand here and we are the object of his affection. But what I want to do real quickly as I, as I kind of close and make an application here is I want to I flip the coin a little bit. Micah, my son and I have been doing a little Bible study through John, the book of John. And we were reading over this, and I just, this is something that came to me as I was kind of preparing for my sermon. Is, you know, we, we would look at this every time of year, and we would stop, and we would look, we'd marvel at it like a Christmas tree. We would look at it and just be in awe of God's love and passion for us. And the reality is, if we stand here and we know him, we are his child. And I think not only did God give us something to marvel at, but just as much so, I think he gives us an example to follow. I think he gives us an example to follow him into the darkness. To shine the light of the gospel into the darkest places. To pursue after people and never give up. We were talking about this in the men's class the other week, and, and I understand it because I'm a man, and I, 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 I feel like this sometimes. Like I wanna, I'm willing to work on something if I think it's going to work out how I want it to. I'm willing to work on something if I think that I'm going to accomplish what I want to accomplish. And the issue is when we want to help people, when we want to love people, we're looking to them to ultimately make a change. And as soon as we decide in our own heart that they're not going to do that, we kind of drop them like a bad habit. In my own life, um, I, I can't remember how much I've shared of this or not, but I had, had a brother who's passed away, my, my uh, oldest sibling, who was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And... I dealt with him consistently through my childhood of seeing what that did to uh, my good, God-fearing parents and the consequences of that. And I, I, I learned to loathe and hate my brother because of what he did to people that I loved. And it was a time in college where God revealed to me my anger and desire to see him punished and to see him get what he deserved. And he revealed that in my own heart. And for me, it was, it was that he, he revealed to me more than that. It was that he saw me and says, is that how I treat you? Do you not deserve punishment? Do you not deserve those things? But yet, despite those, I love you. And it was in those moments that I realized that while my mouth, I would confess that I loved my brother, I didn't really. And I prayed and I said, God, change my heart to love him like you love him. And that is not loving him, desiring to see an outcome. That is to pursue him and to call him and to love him and to shine a light in his life as much as possible. But even if he still rebels, to love and continue that. Because that is the, our job. That is what God desires for us to do. And just like for us, just as children take on the characteristics of their father, we take on that characteristic of loving like the world cannot understand. The world doesn't understand God's unconditional, unfailing love. And even though we don't necessarily understand it in its completion, we can, we can get a grasp of that and we can love other people with that. 
And I'm thankful that just as much as we can marvel in that, I think we can take it and, and get zeal from that. We can say, God, how, how can I help? How can I love others the way that you have loved me? How can I shine light in the darkness? How can I continue to pursue people and do what you have called me to do even in the face of rejection? Because that's ultimately what we would face. And, and, and Jesus told us that. It's not that our job is going to be easy, but rather it's going to be hard. But yet we do it anyway. Because God did it for us. Not just year after year. Not just decade after decade. Not just century after century, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. God was working out a plan for our good and our redemption. And I'm thankful that we have a time of year where we stop to reflect these things. But I pray that it motivates us, just as we sit here and bask in the light of God's love, but it, rather it motivates us to go and love others the same way that we have been loved ourselves. So we would go and take the light of the gospel and shine it in the darkest places, because that's what God has done for us. As we close, I pray that you have experienced that in your life. The light of the gospel someone shared with you, you received it, you became a child of God, you've experienced the love of God. But if you haven't, maybe no one's ever shared the gospel with you. Maybe no one's ever told you of God's unfailing, unconditional love for you. We would love the opportunity to do that. Let's pray as you would respond as God leads. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that you have given us an example, one that I don't fully understand, if I'm honest, one that I don't fully comprehend. But God, we stand and we marvel at your great love for us. And God, we're thankful. And God, we desire not only just to be thankful, but God, we want to show our thanks by loving those around us who may seem unlovable, by going to the places that, we see, that may seem unreachable, by doing the things that just seem impossible. And it isn't that we do them in our own power or in our own strength, but God, you, you give us your strength and your power to do great things for your name and for your kingdom and for your gospel and for your glory. Lord I, Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, as we begin to reflect, Father, that we would not just do so in, in a heartwarming fashion, but Lord, that we would look at our hands and our feet, determine what you want us to do this Christmas and with our lives, ultimately. You have called us to a great calling. Thank you for this opportunity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.